As far as today goes, we've got to kind of get back into gear with uh, a series on Life of David. We left that a while ago to get into Easter series. And so let me give you a little background catch-up time here for you. Uh, we left off in 1 Samuel 30, and now we're skipping out to 2 Samuel chapter 6. So let me fill in some gaps here. Uh, the last chapter in, verse, uh, in uh, chapter 31 of uh, 1 Samuel, that book, it ends, it doesn't end very well. Saul takes his life uh, in, the, in a Philistine battle, and his sons were killed too, and all this. So it's a really tragic ending to that book. And then 2 Samuel starts up, first chapter, that David learns about Saul and Jonathan's death. And he mourns and, and talks about what goes on there. And then in, in the second chapter of 2 Samuel, David then is anointed king over Judah. Finally, he's king. And then Abner, uh, the commander of Saul's army, made Ishbosheth, Saul's son, king over Israel. Now we've got two different kings and, and uh, for different areas. And war broke out among Israel and Judah. David grew stronger and Saul's house grew weaker. And so we have a situation continuing on of, of a struggle. And then in chapter 3, David and Abner make a deal to bring Judah and Israel together. And they're figuring out a way to doing this. But then Joab comes in on this. He's the he's the brother. Um, his brothers were were killed by Abner in the in the battle between Israel and Judah, and so Joab wants to get revenge, and so he avenges his brother's death by then killing Abner, and so that kind of throws a wrench in things as far as uh, bringing these two groups together. And so David mourns Abner's death. And then in chapter 4, we see that Ishbosheth, Israel's king, he's murdered by two men of, of raiding bands to be able to please David. And they go back to David and say, see what we've done for you? Now you are the king. And David didn't like that very much. And he has uh, them killed because of what they did to Ishbosheth. And then chapter 5 comes in, and then we, we finally see David make, being made king over Israel, as well as Judah. And he reigned for 33 years. And then David conquers Jerusalem during that time from the Jebusites. And then David also defeats the Philistines as well, too. So you got all that happening at the end of chapter 5. And this brings us pretty much up to speed uh, and sets the stage for chapter 6. And again... If you want more detail in these things, you, you can join us for Wednesday night Bible study as we look at First and Second Samuel. Now, when you hear the name David from, from the Bible, of course, the things you might think about are maybe David and Goliath, maybe David and Bathsheba, or maybe Samuel anointing David to be king, maybe David the warrior, or maybe David the psalm writer, or maybe David and Jonathan, the great friendship that they had. Maybe, maybe you might even think of David as that father who was grieving and broken for his son Absalom when he was killed. But you know what God remembers about David? It's written in, in Acts. Uh, Paul was giving a message to the Jewish people that included scenes from their past, and he was visiting those. Uh, he tells them how the Israelites asked for a king, and God gave them Saul. And then Paul writes this, he says this in Acts chapter 13, verse 22. He says, After removing Saul, he made David their king. And God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. So God didn't remember David as a great warrior. 
He didn't remember David as a faithful shepherd or even a brilliant king. He found David to care about the things he cared about, a man whose heart beats in sync with God's heart. And there aren't many people whose hearts are, are hot for God, who, who obey God's precepts and honor his principles, but David was like that. Now, if you want to be a person who is after God's heart, which we've been looking at here in the life of David, you need to obey God's precepts and honor his principles. Only then will you experience the abundant life as well as true freedom. And we'll, we'll expand that as we continue on with this uh, message. But precepts and principles, what are those? There are ways in which God tells us what he wants us to do. And there's a difference between the two. A precept, as I looked it up in, uh, in a dictionary, is a general rule intended to regulate behavior or thought. While the principles are fundamental truths that come from those precepts. In other words, precepts are the rules, while principles are those rules applied with wisdom to our lives. There's some examples that are given in, in, in the Old Testament. Precepts are found especially in the Old Testament. They're direct commands, sometimes to a specific person or people or, or even a time. And for instance, the, the Ten Commandments, God gave these to Israel. They're specific and part of the many commands of the Old Covenant. The Jews were to keep these by the letter, but behind them are the principles that not only the Jews were supposed to keep, but you and I as well. Then there's the New Testament example. Jesus gave a, a precept, a very direct, specific command to a rich young ruler who was wanting to know what he should do for eternal life. And I mentioned this just previously. We looked at this. Go sell all that you have and give it to the poor, then come follow me. That's what Jesus told him. And that's a precept. It was a specific command given for that rich young man's specific situation in life. But the principle behind it applies to all of us. Make following Jesus a priority over material stuff. That's the principle. You know, right outside our house down here on Sunnyside Road, there's a speed limit. Speed limit signs that read 40 miles per hour. That's a precept. That sign means 40 miles per hour no matter what time of day, no matter what, you know, what time of night. Whether it's an open road or there's uh, rush, rush hour traffic, the limit is clearly 40 miles per hour. Now, I don't know if all of you keep that or not, but uh, there's no give or take. It's 40 miles per hour. In Montana, the speed limit signs used to read like this. It would say, reasonable and prudent. Now, I know they don't actually do that anymore, but it used to read reasonable and prudent. Uh, that's a principle. It means one speed in dangerous driving conditions or heavy traffic, and it means something entirely different on a deserted road with safe driving conditions. It needs to be applied with wisdom. Now, too often we assume that if we don't have a long list of precepts, a long list of rules, God hasn't told us what to do. But, you know, the Lord doesn't give me a precept about the job I'm supposed to work at, but he does give me principles that tell me that job needs to be something other than a drug dealer or a hitman or a bank robber. 
Nowhere did the Bible ever say, Jim is supposed to date and marry Rebecca Nauman, but it did tell me what kind of woman to look for and how to relate to her and how marriage is supposed to look. Understanding the difference between principles and precepts is important, especially if we're going to take anything home from the story we're going to be looking at. It's a story about God's precepts and principles and what happens when we do or don't keep them. God's wrath compared to God's blessing. The, the setting is, is Jerusalem. And as you know, David is, is king, finally king. And Saul is dead, but the results of his life still linger on. In the last part of his 40-year reign, Saul comprised pretty much a lot of his life of doing things he wanted to do his own way. He, uh, he compromised and fiddled around with all kinds of things besides his job as king. And most of all, he neglected the things of God. And one of those things was the Ark of the Covenant. Now, back when God's people were rescued from Egyptian slavery... The ark traveled around with them and it's in the desert for 40 years and it traveled with them right on into the promised land. And Jerusalem hadn't yet become the center of worship. Instead, the ark was kept in a place called Shiloh, the city there, about 20 miles north of, of uh, Jerusalem. And then during a battle with the Philistines, the ark was captured and later on it was recovered and kept in the house of a man named Abinadab in Kiriath-Jerim. Now think of it the most holy of all objects of worship, the place where God is, and it's being kept in Abinadab's garage. He's got it himself. And this went on for 60 years, and all during the time Saul was king, there it sat. Now, when David took over the throne, he realized that there was no Ark of the Covenant. There was no central place of worship. The spiritual walk of the people of Israel had become stale and stagnant. Their heart was anything but hot after God. And as their leader, David knew that he needed to put that piece of sacred furniture back in its rightful place. He needed to set it up as God designed it. And his heart was after God's, even to the point of locating a small piece of furniture and putting it in a certain place. To David, when it came to God, no detail was unimportant. So the first five verses of 2 Samuel chapter 6, we're going to look at there. We're going to look at chapter 6, might not complete at all. But uh, these first five verses tell us how he got the Ark of the Covenant back in Jerusalem. Look with me in those five, first five verses. David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to Bela in Judah to bring up from there the Ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim of the Ark. They sat, uh, excuse me, they set the Ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ohio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the Ark of God on it. And Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals. A lot of instruments. So here's David rejoicing and celebrating, having a great time, knowing that the Ark of the Covenant was coming back home where it belonged, in Jerusalem. 
And there was the sound of the music, and there was the delight of obedience beating in the heart of David. And quite it was quite the parade. 30,000 people. Music. Celebration. The ark is riding on a, a, new, a brand new cart. Ohio is, is in front. Uzzah is in back. Sounds pretty good, right? Let me hit the pause button on this for just a moment and explain a little bit more about this ark. Now, it, it all actually starts back when God told Moses to build an ark. Now, I know you're thinking, wait, Jim, you got that wrong. Noah built the ark. Okay, yes, that was another ark. But this ark, God wanted Moses to build, basically a box. And the instructions were very specific. In other words, it was a precept. It was to be made of acacia wood and would have been about 19 cubic feet, which would be about almost four feet long and a little under two feet high and, and two feet wide. It was to be covered with gold inside and out. It, was, it had to be special. And it would house the stone tablets containing the Ten Commandments, a golden jar containing uh, the manna from the wilderness, and Aaron's ancient rod. And on top were two gold cherubim angels, their heads bowed and, and facing each other, with their wings spread upward and touching together at the tips. And this part of the ark, called the mercy seat, is where God would display his actual presence. And in Exodus chapter 25, he told Moses, There I will meet with you. Now God's instructions for the ark were so careful that he even told them how it was to be carried. At the base of each of the four corners was a fixed ring of gold, and through these rings were slipped gold-plated poles in order to carry the entire chest, and so that no human hand ever touched the ark itself. And God clearly stated that handling the tabernacle furniture was to be done only by Levites, and the poles were to be carried on their shoulders. Very specific about these things. So whenever Israel moved the ark, they did it that way. They did it the way God told them. This was how the priests carried the ark up, up to the banks of the flooded Jordan River. And when their feet hit the waters, it parted. This was how they carried the ark around Jericho 13 times. And the walls collapsed. When it came to something as holy as the Ark of the Covenant, God gave some very specific instructions, some precepts. How God is to be worshipped, how we are to relate to him, is very important in his sight. Now, this was a lot of detail, but it mattered very much because the Ark was the core of Jewish worship. Every year, Faithful Jewish men would travel to Jerusalem because there, in Jerusalem, was the temple. And there, in the temple, was the innermost place called the Holy of Holies. And, the, the, and there, inside the Holy of Holies, was the Ark, God's presence. And this piece of furniture was absolutely holy. It was set apart to God. So it shouldn't surprise us that God gives some very specific instructions about the Ark. And we need to understand that God has given us all precepts and principles to live by. They touch on every area of life. Who we, who we marry and what our marriage should, should be like. How children should, should relate to parents and how parents should relate to children. 
our thought life, the words we speak, what we place before our eyes, how we, how we should do our work, how we should live in the household of God in, in the church, what we should do with our material wealth, how we're to use our time, how we, the way we treat our bodies, the way we regard the poor, all these things God has laid out to touch every area of our life. God gives us precepts and principles to live by. So every aspect of their worship was important to God, even how the ark was transported from one place to another. And that's where David got into trouble. You see, David was an expedient kind of man. Uh, he was the king. He was the decision maker. And he knew that in order for the people to worship, they need the Ark of the Covenant. In order to get the Ark of the Covenant down the hill from the home of Abinadab, the quickest and best way to do it is put it on a cart. So David had them get a new cart, put the cart underneath this, this, this chest, and told a few men, in effect, basically, haul it down to Jerusalem. Get it down there. So they're bringing it down this way with two sons of Abinadab, Uzzah, and, and Ohio, leading the cart when something horrific happens. Look with me in verses 6 and 7. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. Man, talk about a party stopper. A picture of this scene like, like this maybe you see in a movie. I picture it kind of like that way too. A scene in a movie where the music is blaring, people are dancing, and suddenly it sounds like someone unplugged the record player. Took the, took the needle and just right across and everything stopped. God gives us precepts for us to keep. When we break them, we should expect there will be consequences. You've heard, don't sweat the small stuff. That's a great, great piece of advice when it comes to dealing with life's little stresses. Don't worry about those little things. Don't let them get you down. Don't let them trip you up. But sometimes we need help sorting out what is and what isn't small stuff. Disregarding God's precepts about how to treat holy things not really small stuff. Jesus included this in a parable about a wedding feast in Matthew 22. A king threw a wedding banquet for his son, and when he came in to see the guests, there was a man there who wasn't wearing the wedding garment. Now, in first century Palestinian weddings, every guest would be given a wedding garment as they came in the door. It was just part of the deal as a guest. For some reason, this guy had decided he wasn't going to wear this. And in Matthew chapter 22, verses 11 through 13, it says, When the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, Tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know, when we when we accept God's invitation to fellowship, when we come into his presence to worship, it's no small matter. We can't approach God on our own terms and disregard what God has said is the right way to do that. Jesus said that to properly worship God, it has to be done in spirit and in truth. 
While David and Israel were worshiping God in spirit that day, definitely, they weren't just going through the motions. They were worshiping God with their whole selves. But they weren't worshiping in truth. They weren't worshiping according to what God clearly had ordered. And it cost Uzzah his life. Notice David's reaction in the next verse, verse 8. It says, Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah, and to this day that place is called Perez Uzzah. Now about now you might be thinking, well, I thought you said he was a man after God's heart. What happened? I did, and more importantly, God did. God said that he's a man after his own heart. Does this mean that he's perfect? You know, no. No, it doesn't mean that he's perfect. Having a heart for God doesn't mean you, you, you do things perfectly. It means you're sensitive. It means every detail is important. And when you see you're wrong, you face it. You admit it. You own up to it. You come to terms with it, basically. Look with me in verse 9. It says, David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? The problem here was that David had not done his homework. (laughs) We often get into trouble when we don't do our homework. Uh, Isn't that right, students? Brianna, Maddie. (laughs) When we think we see pretty clearly what the Lord's will is, and so in expediency or in convenience, we run off to do it our way. And the Lord says, look, I've written a lot of things in my book about that decision you just made, and I want you to take counsel from me. That's why it's it's not working. If you want to have a, a heart for me, then check my word and find either a precept or a principle and go according to that. When you do that, I'll give you joy like you can't believe. If you don't, I will make you miserable. Uzzah was killed because he touched an ultra-holy article of furniture that was not to be touched, especially by a non-Levite. But who cares about Levites anyway? God does. Who cares about little ringlets and golden poles that go through ringlets? God does. He, and if he didn't care, he wouldn't have said anything, anything about it. And because he cares, we must also care. And that's the whole point. That's the whole point here. When we begin to care about the things God cares about, when we obey God's precepts and honor his principles, we become people after his heart and begin to experience true freedom, true freedom and the abundant life. But David was afraid. And in verse 10, says he was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Now, you better believe David was unwilling. I would be too, thinking something just happened here, not sure what was going on, but this person died, and we did something wrong. Everyone stop. Don't move. And so take this, take this over to, to Obed-Edom. Leave it there. Now let's see what happens. And verse 11. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Hmm, interesting. 
When God's ways of doing things are honored, there's actually a great freedom. Three months after the, the Uzzah disaster, David's, David's ready to try again. Go ahead and go at it again. Sometime in that three months, David has been checking the instruction book on this, this thing. He's doing his homework. This time he gives attention to the small stuff. It's recorded in 1 Chronicles chapter 15. In verse 2 it says, Then David said, No one but the Levites may carry the ark of God, because the Lord chosen them to carry the ark of the Lord and to minister before him forever. And then verses 13 and 15 of 1 Chronicles 15 says, It was because you, the Levites, did not bring it up the first time that the Lord our God broke out in anger against us. We did not inquire of him about how to do it in the prescribed way. And the Levites carried the ark of God with the poles on their shoulders as Moses had commanded in accordance with the word of the Lord. And the other account of the same event is recorded in our text today in verses 12 through 14. Look with me there in 2 Samuel, verses 12 through 14. Now King David was told, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went down and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. David, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all his might. So, this time there's no cart, and the only animals are there to be sacrificed. <laughs> Isn't it amazing what a difference shoulders and poles can make? So what has happened? Basically, David has made a conscious effort to keep the Lord's precepts, to bind himself with them, and now he's free to dance. <laughs> and look at verse 14 again. This is the picture of a person who is living inside of God's precepts and principles. As the uh, New American Standard Version puts it, he's making merry to the point that his wife sees it, my, uh, Michael sees it, and doesn't understand it at all. And she's kind of offended by all his actions and how he's doing this. But David was freed because of his obedience. So notice what has happened here. Notice what gets us from Uzzah zapped dead at the threshing floor of, of Nacon to David upset and afraid outside Jerusalem to the huge victory parade and David celebrating before the Lord with all his might. What got us there? It was the attention to obedience. We get so off base about what it means to be free. We think I can't wait until I'm 18 and move away. I'll be free then. Or if I can just quit having to keep the safety rules at work, I'd get so much more done. Or if I were just free to look at what I wanted to look at, life would be so much more satisfying. Or if I could just find a church that lets me believe what I want to believe, not, not one that doesn't, doesn't try to restrict what I do, then I'd be happy. There was a time when we first got here to Happy Valley. We had that summer of 2004. Some of you remember this. Our family sure does. But 2004, we made the move that summer to Happy Valley. And it was a long move. In fact, there was a couple months there we really didn't have any place to live. And we stayed in the parsonage a little bit. We stayed over at uh, 
oh, uh, uh, Bob and Sharon's for a little bit when they were on vacation. We stayed up in Battleground a little bit, but we also too had to have a place for our things. And so we, we made sure that happened along with our cat, Meshack, and some of you remember her. Meshack was a small little cat and kind of grew to a big fat cat, but um, was a small little cat that was just so nice and uh, uh, allows you to pick her up. You know, Brianna, when she was young, was able to whip her around and, and throw her around and she wouldn't do much anything about it. Uh, Meshack wouldn't. And so Meshack, we wanted to bring her up here as well, but we didn't have any place to put her. So we were able to have uh, Jerry and Sharon, Becky's parents, take the cat up there in the battleground. And they left her in the, one of the bedrooms there that they had. They would feed her. And as long as she stayed in there, in that room, in that bedroom, she was safe. And, and, and didn't try to get out. She was safe there. But there was one moment where she decided to get outside. And she took off out and wound up outside somewhere. And uh, we got up there because we were told that Meshach is gone. Not sure where she's at. We got up there and was, we were looking around, couldn't find her. And we could hear her meowing from a big old bushel of, of, of blackberry bushes there. And I looked in there. It was at night. Looked in there with flash of, uh, flashlight that direction. You could see these two beady eyes looking up and a meowing, a meowing. And boy, was she surprised. She thought... I can get out of this room. I can be safe. I can get out of here. You know, Jerry and Sharon had a number of dogs and other cats as well, too. So there's a lot of other things involved there. If she, if Misha got out of that room, she was not safe. If she got outside of that house, she was not safe. She was, she might have been free, but she was free to get into disaster. Very interesting situation. And she wasn't as free as she thought she would be. You know, and too often we accept the lie. By the way, we were able to get Meshach back in and finish that story. And she was brought back into the house. But, you know, too often we accept the lie that being free means stepping outside of obedience. The fact is, real freedom can come only when we give attention to obedience. When we obey God's precepts and honor his principles, only then will we experience the abundant life and true freedom. You know, life is the freest when it's lived within God's design. But, you know, there's that person who's always looking over his shoulder, straining to remember the last lie so that the next one will match it. How do you get such a person to peace and, re and relief from stress and worry? By living God's precepts to not lie. The person who's suffering from stress over money and getting into a bottomless pit financially how does that person get to a place of being financially responsible and trusting in the Lord to provide? Living by God's principles of good stewardship. The spouse who is sneaking around, telling lies, always being afraid of being found out. How does that person get to a fulfilling and guilt-free marriage? Living by God's precepts of marital faithfulness. The one who is always damaging others, getting into trouble at work and at home and ruining relationships. How can that person change to being appreciated and known as a person of good character? Learning to live by God's principles about controlling anger. You know, the person who's always trying to be good enough to make it to heaven and never sure. And, and maybe that's you. Maybe that's you today. How do you get to the point of confidence in Jesus and his grace to save you. 
understanding and living God's principles that bring salvation. That's how it's done. Remember, among all these things, you're never too lost or done too much to be out of the reach of God's grace. God's grace is big enough to handle whatever you're involved with. You just need to come back. Come to Jesus. Psalm 119 verse 45 says, I will walk about in freedom, for I have sought out your precepts. Maybe the day that David was in the ark, uh, that big old ark parade into Jerusalem, he could say, today I can, I can dance in freedom, because finally I have sought out your precepts. You know, God doesn't give us his guidelines for life to suppress us and to hinder us. He gives them to us for the sake of keeping us free from the things that hurt us. Life is the freest when it's within God's design. There's freedom in obedience. There's great freedom. Jesus was speaking to a group of skeptical Jews who already thought they were free when he said in John chapter 8, verses 34 through 36, I tell you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Today, no matter, no matter how free you feel or how, how free you want to be, there's only one way to be free indeed. And that freedom comes when you conform your life to what the Lord has intended for it and allowing the Son to set you free. What are you in shackles in? What are you bound by? Allow Jesus to set you free in this. We experience that true freedom in the abundant life when we obey God's precepts and when we honor his principles. Maybe someone here today needs to respond to the Holy Spirit's promptings right now. I'm going to take some time to pray, and when I do, I encourage you as well, that if the Holy Spirit's been prompting you about some things, tapping you on the shoulder, take some time to respond in prayer as I pray as well. Let's go to the Lord in prayer right now. Lord Jesus, right now, we just pray that you would come to us in an incredible way. Lord, that you would continue to speak to our hearts about the need to follow you closely. And, and that's, that's what we want to be doing, be followers of Christ, followers of Jesus. And in order to do that, there's some things that need, need to be followed. Your precepts, your principles. And when we don't do that, we find ourselves in a mess. Lord, I pray for that person today that might be, might, might be thinking, yeah, you know, Lord, there's some things in my life. I'm, I'm just not following you closely, and I need to make some changes. Lord, for that person, I pray that you would remind them that they're not too far away, that they have, done, they have not done too much to be out of your grace. And I pray, Lord, that they would just come to you, receive you, Allow you to clean up their life. Allow you to give direction. Allow you to restore order in their life. And Lord, I pray that we then would continue to follow you closely in all that we say and do. Lord, thank you for your message today. Thank you for speaking to our hearts today. And thank you, Lord, for 
how you're going to do great things through us. Lord, I just pray that as we go from here today, that whatever we say and do will be glorifying to you. Lord, we love you so much. In your name we pray. Amen.